to Romans that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth, the truth of God, the truth of his existence, by their wickedness. We talked last week a little bit about how men suppress that truth. And basically, uh, we saw in Psalm 14 and in uh, John, the third chapter, that men love the wickedness more. They love the darkness more than they did the light. And so that the light is, is evident to all men, and we see Paul saying this in the 19th and 20th verses, though men have visibility, clear visibility of God, though all men have the truth of God, they suppress it. They don't willingly, excitedly embrace it initially. That's what the Bible tells us. And we see this pretty much reflected if we look into our own life and the lives of other people that we've shared the gospel with. You can explain the gospel just as clear as a bell to somebody, and it makes so much sense, and you look at them and you say, do you understand? They say, yeah. And then you say, do you want to ask Jesus as your Savior? And they say, no. And you say, why? You say, I just don't want to, and you can see him close right off. And the bottom line reason is always moral. It's because they love the wickedness more. They love the darkness more. The Bible tells us that. The Bible gives us that understanding. Now, in the 19th and 20th verses, Paul goes on to say, in the, in the 18th verse, he tells us that God's angry at the sin of men. He's absolutely angry over it. And in the 19th and 20th verses, Paul begins to give us the reasons, actually clear through the 23rd verse, we're going to look at 19 and 20 this morning, clear through the 23rd verse, Paul begins to show us and explain to us that God is just and is justified to be angry over the sin of men. And the first thing he tells us is that men have rejected his own revelation of himself. He says, for since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the beginning of creation, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. This is, this is powerful stuff. God's very nature, his divine nature and his eternal power have been clearly seen, Paul says, through what has been made so that men are without excuse. God has revealed himself to all men through what's been made through creation. We're going to look a little bit in a few more minutes about some of the ways that we can know God through creation. We can see him. Some ways will just knock your socks off. I want to build up to that. I want you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, the 34th chapter. There's an interesting passage there. God has revealed himself to Moses. He's given Moses the Ten Commandments, the law. And Moses is so excited, he says, God, I want to see your face. I want to see you face to face. You know, when you, don't you, don't you have that hunger sometimes when, when you've, you've had a revelation of God and and you've seen him in a, in a, in a very real sense, and so you want to you really see him? Oh, God, if I could just see you. Right? Well, God tells Moses, you can't see me. No man can see me face to face and live. You're just not built for it. 
you'll come apart molecule by molecule. It's impossible. But I'll pass by you. I'll put you up here in this rock. I'll put my hand over you. And God speaks in, in terminology that we can relate to, not that God has a hand that he's got to put over him. But he speaks in terms that we can relate to. And he says, I'll, and I'll pass by you. You can see my back. And my glory will pass before you. And, and boy, did his glory ever pass before Moses. When Moses came down off the mountain, his face was glowing. People, his face was so bright, his countenance was so brilliant that people could not look on him. He had to put a bag over his head. His whole face went, vuba, vuba, you know, like a big old light bulb. But in the 34th chapter, starting at the 5th verse, the Lord reveals himself to Moses. And if you look at how, what God says about himself, about his character and about his nature, you see, if you look, you can see these very same attributes reflected in creation. And I'll try to point some of them out for you. Verse 5, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Look how he starts. He identifies himself as being compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. That means he's patient. Slow to anger. I'm thankful he's patient. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in love. Abounding in faithfulness. God's always there. There's no small thing for him. Love and faithfulness. He's abounding in these qualities. Maintaining love to thousands. Thousands of people, thousands of generations, literally. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Aren't you glad that God forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin and doesn't hold us accountable to it? That he forgives us for that because of Christ? That Christ took that wrath? I am. And yet, despite all these wonderful qualities, this graciousness and love and mercy and so forth, and yet he says about himself that he is just. He says he will not leave the guilty unpunished. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. How do you feel when someone who's as guilty as all get out of some terrible crime gets off on a technicality? Are you overjoyed? No, you're enraged, aren't you? Because justice has not been served. And God, though he's a God of love, he is also a God of absolute, perfect justice. He says, and the guilty will not go unpunished. They will be. Now, who are the guilty? Those are the people that continue in sin, continue in wickedness, and continue to rebel. And God, in his patience, reaches a point where he says, enough is enough. And the hammer falls. Now, I want you to look with me at the eighth verse. This is really key. Now, God has revealed himself to Moses. And I want you to see Moses' response. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped him. What's his response? He bowed at once and he worshipped. That was the only response. That's the only plausible response that we can have at the revelation of God. That's the only thing that makes sense. 
We must bow. We must worship in the face of this great and glorious God who reveals himself to us. When you contemplate creation, when you take a few moments out of your busy schedule, you dig up some concrete, you know, because we've covered creation with concrete. can't see it without removing the concrete. And you contemplate creation. You stand in awe. You go, wow, incredible. Absolutely incredible. How can God judge? How can God condemn? How can God send people to hell? How can God take the people in the Old Testament at the time of the flood? And how can he wipe them all out, save Noah and his family? How can God be justified to obliterate the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities of the plain and send all those people to hell? How can God be a God who wiped out the great majority of the Egyptian army, killed all the firstborn in Egypt? How can he be justified to do that? How can God be justified to wipe out nearly all the Canaanite and Amorite nations in the Promised Land when he sent Israel in with instructions to destroy them? How can God be justified and be a good God? Well, Paul tells us in these passages that God is justified. And that these people continued in their rebellion, continued to resist and suppress the truth of God's existence by their wickedness. And hence, God judges them. And you and I, you know what it's like to be a parent, and you want your child to honor you and obey you, don't you? Right? When you have their best interests and you're bringing discipline to bear and so forth and you're training them up, you want the child to obey you. Now, what, what, what rises up in you when, when your best efforts, all the best that you can do for that child in wisdom, and that child does not respond, that child just digs their heels in and says, No! Are you overjoyed? You say, Oh, I'm so happy. Is that what you say? No! Something rises up in you totally opposite, doesn't it? A righteous indignation. Who are you to tell me no? Don't you know who I am? <laughs> that child has no right. In all foolishness, has no right to say no, though, though they do. That child must obey. That's the order of things. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. When mankind says no in the face of all that God has done and all the revelation that God has given about his existence and his good intentions to help us and to heal us and to deliver us from our problem, and we dig our heels in and say no, he gets ticked. And he is justified to bring judgment to bear on those people who continue to resist. He can do nothing else. In order for him to be fully God, he must judge sin. He can have nothing to do with sin. He can't just wink at it. He can't just let it pass by. He can't just ignore it. He's got to judge it. And anyone who's associated with it, when he judges it, is going to be judged right along with it. And we have a problem, don't we? Mankind has a problem. And God wants to solve the problem for us. 
He asks us to trust Him, to give our life into His hands. And if we trust Him, we believe in Him, we start doing things His way, we let His Holy Spirit come in and take up residence and begin to change us from the inside out, He'll take care of the problem. But we resist as human beings. Mankind as a whole resists. All God's best efforts. Jesus came to reveal God a step further than God had already revealed Himself. Jesus came on this earth. He walked amongst men. You read the gospel accounts. You see this fella who's walking around, healing people, teaching them, telling them what's right, helping them out, doing wonderful things in their life. And what do they do? They nail him to a cross. How incredibly stupid. But you see, that shows the perverseness. That shows the depth and the degree to which men are godless. They don't want anything to do with God that they nailed him to a tree. Their wickedness manifested itself in that manner. Moses, when God is revealed, bows down at once and worships God. And that ought to be our response. All of mankind, as we contemplate creation, all of mankind ought to bow down because he's worthy of it. In who he is. His incredible nature. His power. He's worthy of us creatures bowing down and worshiping Him at once. And when we don't, when we rebel and continue in our wickedness, we are worthy of judgment, and God is just to judge us. God has put a witness in every man. John writes in the first chapter, the ninth verse of his gospel, that the, that the light has come into every man that there is an internal witness and testimony in every man of the truth of God's existence. And yet men love the darkness more. I'm reminded, and this absolutely blows me away, many of you probably know of Helen Keller, you know, the, the blind little girl who was blind and so forth. Here's a gal who was blind, deaf, and mute. Absolutely no way to communicate with her or for her to communicate back. Until one day, a woman by the name of Ann Sullivan began to work with this, this young girl, Ann, uh, Helen Keller. Ann worked with her hour upon hour, and day upon day, and week upon week, and month upon month, and finally was able to unlock communication with Helen Keller. And as they began to communicate, one of the first things that Ann sought to talk to Helen Keller about and sought to tell her about God. And you know what Helen Keller's response was? She said, Oh, I already knew about him. I just didn't know his name. At the revelation of that, when I understood that and I saw that, into my mind popped the picture of the, 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 of the man that was born blind in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. Do you remember that passage? When Jesus and the disciples are walking past and the disciples say, Jesus, why is this man blind from birth? Was it some sin of his father? Or some, what did his, fa his family do something wrong or what? And Jesus said, no, it's none of those things. It's so that God's glory would be manifest. And we know what happened. Jesus healed this guy. That same passage popped into my mind. And, and I thought that God's glory might be manifest through Helen Keller, that we might see that God could communicate with people when no one else can communicate with them, that God could let them know in their being, inside them, that He exists. 
And however incapable they are of communicating that to anybody else, they are aware, they know internally to his glory that he exists, that he has revealed himself to them. Isn't that exciting? Boy, it thrilled my heart. Do you know that there are people through, throughout the history of man who've come to terms and, and acknowledge their guilt before God? And even in the face of, of punishment, they've said, I'm guilty, you're right. And anything that you do to me, I deserve. We saw that with Achan. Do you remember in the book of Joshua? Achan was the guy that when the Israelites went in and stormed and destroyed the city of Jericho as they were taking the promised land, that God had said to the, the whole Israelite nation that, that the city of Jericho and everything it contains is holy to me. It belongs to me. Don't take anything. Now, that was an exercise in discipline. It was an object lesson for the people. That they were to say, okay, Lord, the first, every, the first part of, of all the great harvest belongs to you. We want to honor you with the first. We're not going to take any bit of it. So the whole nation obeys except one guy named Achan. Some obscure guy. You know, he figures, well, I'm just a nobody. No one knows me. I have a little tiny family. We live way over here in this little tiny tribe in this little tent. No one will know. He goes in, and, he, and when, when Israel wipes out Jericho, he takes some silver and gold. He takes it back to his tent and buries it. Who's going to know, right? A little tiny bit doesn't make that big a difference, except to God. And God ferrets him out. He has Joshua go and confront him. He's worthy of punishment and death. He's disobeyed God. And Joshua says to him, calls him out of his tent, and says, did you steal that stuff? Achan says, huh? Who, me? Confess your sin, he says, and give glory to God. What do you mean by that? Well, I think he meant admit your, admit your guilt. Fess up. Tell the truth. You're going to get it, Achan. But before you get it, you better tell the truth and give glory to God that whatever happens to you, you deserve. And that God is just in judging you. Achan confesses his sin. He admits it. By the very fact of his admission, he says, I am guilty. And I give glory to God that whatever you do to me, it's, you're, you're just. Very clear. I want you to go to, with me to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Chapter 4. There's an interesting account that I want to share with you here. The Israelites were at a place in their in their relationship with God, they were at a low point in their relationship with God. And uh, as, as always seemed to happen at those points, God would bring uh, the Israelites' uh, nemesis, the Philistines, to afflict them. And uh, certainly enough, the Philistines are on the scene again, and Israel goes out to war against them but gets soundly beat. And the Israelites come back into the camp, and we pick the account up in chapter 4, verse uh, 3. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? They said, Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, apparently, they'd gone into battle without the ark. Now, the ark of the covenant, if you ever saw the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, did you see that? That gold-covered box with these two figures on top, those are cherubim. They were a class of angel. And the Lord's presence was supposed to have dwelt right there between the cherubim. And that's where 
God would interact with Israel, and, and wherever Israel went, the ark was supposed to go before them and was supposed to dwell in their midst, and hence the presence of God would dwell in the midst of the people. But now the ark has been up at Shiloh for some time, and they've really been out of relationship with God. They get whipped by the Philistines, and they say, let's go get God. Let's bring God down from Shiloh so he can help us, and the Philistines won't whip us again. Sometimes we do that. We're away from God for a while. Bad stuff starts happening. We say, oh, we better get back to God. You know? And then while that's okay, uh, I think it's a little foolish to think that God is going to be doing to do some wonderful things until we're committed in relationship with him. Well, what happens here? They got the box. They got God. Verse 4, so this people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Verse 5, when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Woo! God is here! All right! And a big party went on in the camp. Okay, they're all excited. Would you be excited if God showed up? Sure. Verse 6, hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrews' camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, when the box was back. Okay? The Philistines were afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, they knew that this box was powerful. They knew that somehow the God or the gods of Israel lived in this box, and wherever this box went, man, trouble happened. Okay? Because they'd heard about Egypt. And how the whole Egyptian army got wiped out. This wasn't just local news. This was known throughout the whole ancient world. At that time, Israel was wiped out, or Egypt was wiped out by, the, by God. They were the most powerful nation on earth. I mean, the rest of the world hear about it if America or Russia got totally blitzed, huh? Don't you think? Sure. Well, the Philistines knew about that. They knew about the history of this box. It says, a god has come into the camp, they said, and we're in trouble. <laughs> Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, in verse 8. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Now some guy stands up in the middle of the crowd, while the Philistines' knees are shaken. Some cheerleader stands up and says, Be strong, you Philistines! Okay? Come on, let's get our act together, guys. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews. Like, can you see this in the, the locker room at halftime? Come on, guys. Don't be afraid. Be men and fight. So verse 10 says, The Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. Uh-oh. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. That's not how it's supposed to happen. You think the Israelites were surprised? I think so. Would you be surprised? All of a sudden you got God on your side, and you get whipped? You say, God, where are you? Not only that, look at else what happens. The ark of God is captured. Oh, no. Now, you think that Israel has trouble with God. I want you to look now and see the Philistines. They've got God on their hands now. And let's see how the Philistines deal with God. <laughs> Go to chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God... They took it from Ebenezer, that's where they were, to Ashdod. Now, that's the Philistine capital, Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, Dagon is the Philistine god. It's a, uh, an image 
made to look, it's half fish, head of a fish and body of a man, kind of opposite a mermaid, all right? So they set the ark, they set this box next to Dagon. Let's see what happens. Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. <laughs> They'd had a little tremor, a little earthquake, and knocked Dagon off the shelf, apparently. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained, just the stumps. They nicknamed him Stumpy after that. <laughs> Verse 6 says, The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and in its vicinity. That's interesting, huh? Upon the people of Ashdod and the vicinity. I mean, if you're anywhere near sin, boy, you're going to catch some of the flack, aren't you? It affects all of us, doesn't it? Sure it does. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Now, some of your translations say hemorrhoids. Poor translation. Hemorrhoids usually are not fatal. Tumors can be and are. And great devastation came upon the people in the form of a plague, similar to bubonic plague, and tumors. What the plague didn't kill, God's tumors did kill. His hand was heavy upon these Philistines. Verse 7, when the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. Now, how do you suppose they made a connection between what was happening to them and to that box? You suppose that God's internal witness to them convinced them that that's where they ought to look? That's the source of the problem? Probably. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And I love this part. They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. Now, Gath is the next city on down the line. It's like the people of Manhattan Beach saying, let's get rid of this thing, let's send it to the Hermosa Beach. All right, so they send the ark down to Hermosa Beach. All right? But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic, and he afflicted the people of that city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. And so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. That's the next city along the line. What do you think the Ekronites said? We don't want that thing. Don't send it down here to us. Shoot. Look at chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, I mean, God is wreaking some havoc into the Philistines in seven months. Would you like to have God on your hands? No, not like this. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Now you notice they're not calling him the God of Israel anymore, are they? What are we going to do with the ark of the Lord? <laughs> Woo! Tell us how we should send it back. And they answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. They knew that they were getting exactly what they deserved. A guilt offering is a statement of their guilt. And don't you send it back without admitting that guilt. And that whatever happened has happened 
and it's justified. They had violated God, and God's hand was heavy upon them, and they were forced to come to grips and admit it. And men all throughout history have come to a place, pagans have come to a place where they've admitted their guilt before God, and that's the thing that brings them to a point of, of saying, save me, I surrender. And the wrath of God is designed to instill a sense of their guilt, their very real legal culpability before God. Paul, in the book of Acts, Luke writes and has him talking to the, in two different places, in Lycia and, and off in, uh, in Athens when he talks to the uh, philosophers on Mars Hill. Paul, in two situations, in the 14th chapter and the 17th chapter, describes how God has revealed himself through all of creation. And hence, all men have the truth of God revealed to them, the truth of God's existence. And we see their response. Some of them believe, but the majority of them don't believe. And Paul says God is justified to bring his wrath because people have rejected and held down the truth of God by their wickedness. And God has made himself plain and visible to all men. Every man has the witness from creation, and every man has a witness inside him that there is one God who is a powerful God, who is a God of grace and love and joy and justice. You see these things reflected in creation very clearly. I want to share with you some, some uh, examples that I've managed to pull together. They're pretty exciting, I think. And they'll give you some sense of God's great power and majesty and give you a, a, an understanding of his nature. How can we see God in creation? Here are some ways. There is a species, or several actually, species of birds that navigate by the stars. Okay? And there was an experiment, apparently, that, that uh, sought to see if these birds... Uh, what would happen to them if they were raised in an environment where they were totally excluded from any uh, exposure to the sky, to the nighttime sky where the stars were. And so they, were, they took a, a, a sampling of, of these one particular species of bird eggs, and they raised them, hatched them in an enclosed environment with no exposure ever for these birds to the nighttime sky so that they might orient themselves. And when the birds had gone past the hatchling stage into nearly full-grown stage, these experimenters exposed these same set of birds to an artificial sky, nighttime sky, with the stars and so forth. But the section that they exposed them to was a place their species had never been. There had been no history of this particular species of birds having been in that part of the world with that orientation. They knew how to do that. Is there some design in that, possibly? And if there's some design, doesn't design speak of a designer? Scientists are looking at this universe, and they see the universe as an incredible effect. If you know anything about the law of cause and effect, when you see an effect, you know there has to be a cause. The universe is so massive, so inexhaustible, there has to be some incredible cause to the universe. 
There is no God. That's what men say. There is a fish called the archer fish. Fascinating little fish. And this little fish feeds like every other fish. Just swims around with its mouth open and eats. Okay, a little fish and plankton and so forth in the water. The fascinating thing about this fish, and I think about God's creativity, is that this fish has a unique ability to be able to spit little drops of water out of the water and knock insects out of the air. And interestingly, it doesn't always eat those little insects. It seems to do it more for sport. <laughs> I think that if you follow that little life cycle of that, of, that, of that fish and you watch what happens to those little insects, I think what God does is God has, has in his great design, has created this little fish to knock insects out of the sky to feed some other fish. Isn't that an interesting thought? See how God provides? And he has a wonderful imagination, doesn't he? <laughs> Fascinating. Do you know that there are microscopic mites, and I bet you didn't know this, but there are microscopic mites that live in, habitate the ears of moths. Now the interesting thing is this, that they don't inhabit both ears of the moth. They only inhabit one ear. Apparently, if they were to inhabit both ears, the moth wouldn't be able to fly, and the mite couldn't get around. Does that speak of design? Yeah, I think so. Greg was telling me about this little bug. It's called the bombardier beetle. And this is a fascinating little beetle. I've never seen one, but he was telling me about it. That this little beetle has the ability to mix chemicals in such a way as to produce an explosion. Now, the fascinating thing is that this explosion is used to destroy its enemies when they try to eat it. Would you like to be able to do that? <laughs> okay. The exciting thing is that the explosion never occurs prematurely. It occurs at just the precise moment when he needs it for defense, and hence he never blows himself up. <laughs> Incredible. A bombardier beetle. I mean, you ought, to, you ought to go to the library sometime. I had a ball in the library Thursday reading through books and looking at this weird stuff, and I can't tell you all the things that I just was amazed by from God's creation. I talked to the librarian. I told her what I wanted. I said, I want some books. I want to, I want to get some really odd, wonderful, exciting things that show God in creation. <laughs> and she didn't say anything. She just kind of, oh. I said, you know, and I talked about this little bombardier beetle that Greg had taught me, taught me, talked to me about. And I said, this, I, I want to get some of these examples. Can you show me some of these books? She was having one heck of a time, but we managed to get some books and pile through some things. I want you to consider with me the hydrological cycle of water. Do you know, and, and I want you to picture this. This is absolutely amazing. Water. Water is evaporated off the surface of the emotions, of, of the oceans, okay? <laughs> Water is evaporated off the surface of the oceans, and it is lifted against the power of gravity, and it's lifted thousands of feet in the air, and there it's suspended, and it's collected in clouds, is it not? And then the clouds curiously drift over the land, and guess what? Drop the water. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> Do you know that man has yet to develop a machine to accomplish that very thing? 
We don't have a machine to do that, but God does. It's called the sun. And it's 93 million miles away. Think about that. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, says this, and I quote, Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. This is one of the premier, one of the foremost scientists in the world saying now that we see, the scientific community sees how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the creation of the world. He goes on to say, science has proved that the universe exploded into existence at a certain moment that it did not evolve. Wow, isn't that exciting? You ought to tell some junior high science teacher that. <laughs> and quote Robert Jastrow to him. Generally, the science teachers in our schools are, are 20 to 30 years behind the times in terms of their understanding of what the truth is. And so are the textbooks. He says, what caused this effect, or who or what put the matter or energy into the universe, we do not know. All that we know is that it's happened. He goes on and he says, For the scientist who has lived his life by faith in the power of reason alone, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the, the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries already. <laughs> now, all he's saying is that when you study science, you're willing to set aside your biases, your preconceived notions, and you study science, you have to ultimately come to the place of seeing that God did create the universe. It had to have a designer. There's too much complexity, too much design, too much purpose. There are too many blatant hints of the existence of God in creation. I want you to consider with me the 200-inch telescope at Mount Palomar. With that telescope, it is incredible in its, in its ability to, to focus on distances. With that telescope, scientists can look into space for a distance of 4 billion light years. You say, well, how far is that? That is 25 sextillion miles. And that's just a small piece of actual space. Can I grab you? Meteorologists have calculated that at any one given time, approximately 1,800 storms are occurring on the surface of the Earth. At any one given time. Now get this, 1,800 storms. And these storms, the energy expended by these storms, amounts to 1,300,000,000 horsepower. Is that awesome? Now let me give you some perspective on this. A Caterpillar tractor, a big one, has about 420-some-odd horsepower. 
It takes about 100 gallons of fuel a day to run that thing. How much fuel does God have to run 1,800 storms a day at 1,300,000,000 horsepower a day? Does that blow you away? I just blesses my socks off. Physicists have calculated, this is exciting, physicists have calculated that a rain of four inches, a four-inch rain, over an area of approximately 10,000 square miles, that's about one-seventh the size of the state of Missouri, a four-inch rain over 10,000 square mile area, would require, now get this, the burning of some 640 million tons of coal to evaporate the water. Talk about energy. And not only that, to condense the vapor and to collect it in clouds would require another 800 million horsepower of energy of refrigeration in order to collect that. And that would have to be expended 24 hours a day over a period of 100 days to condense that water for that kind of rain. Where is all the power coming from? Would you say to me, and can you say to me, that God has revealed his eternal power through what has been created, as the Bible says? It's undeniable when you examine the facts. In Minnesota, the average farmer, get this, the average farmer in Minnesota is given, free of charge, 407,510 gallons of water per acre per year. No charge from God. Isn't that wonderful? Where does God get all the power to move all this stuff around? Incredible. Did you know that there are some 10 million species of insects? Have you ever had a picnic outside? <laughs> you know something of that. There are over 2,500 different kinds of ants. Some ant colonies can have as many as 100 million ants in them. 100 million ants! That boggles my mind. Do you know that there are over 5 billion birds just in America? Five billion birds. I was reading to my son the other day out of uh, one of these books that we got at the library, and it, it was talk, it's a book that just talks about the bald eagle. And do you know that the bald eagle absolutely astonished me. I didn't know this. The bald eagle fly, can fly up to 120 miles an hour. And not only that, he can tuck his wings back and dive at nearly 200 miles an hour, that he has these little feathers on the, on the tips of his wings. They're like little fingers. They look like, if you, if you look real close. These little feathers that, that bald eagles have been observed in winds of hurricane force with these little feathers just flittering, standing absolutely still. Incredible. And those little feathers generate just little little air currents, little circular air currents that keep them in perfect position. Just with those little tiny feathers. 
and there is no God. Oh, here's one I bet you didn't know. Do you know that catfish, catfish, I'm sorry, codfish, codfish can lay nine million eggs? Does that astonish you? Incredible. Nine million eggs. Most of us are aware that the earth is 25,000 miles around. You know, we learned that in grade school. I learned it. However, I'd never learned what the earth weighed. You know what the earth weighs? I bet you didn't know this either. The earth weighs six septillion, 588 sextillion tons. <laughs> and it hangs in empty space. You say, wait a minute, i got a solution for that. It's held there by the gravity of the sun. How, what holds the sun up? <laughs> I heard a story about a guru, a guru and his student. A student came and said to him, Master, Master, what holds the earth up? The guru thought for a moment. The guru said, an elephant. And the student thought for a moment, came back to the master and said, Master, what holds the, up the elephant? And the master thought a moment, and he said, elephants all the way down. <laughs> all the way down to where? See how foolish it is? There is no God. There is no master designer who has revealed himself through all of creation. So obvious when you look. And when you turn away and you say there is no God, you are accountable. So the earth, that big, hangs in space. Listen to this. The earth spins at 1,000 miles an hour. We're spinning right now, folks, at 1,000 miles an hour with such precision so that time is kept to the split second. No variation. Awesome, isn't it? Well, not only that. At the same time we're spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, we are hurtling through space in an orbit of 580 million miles around the sun at 1,000 miles a minute. <laughs> Mind-boggling, isn't it? And there is no God. Woo. Did you know that the head of a comet may be from 10,000 to 100,000 miles long? That's just the head of a comet. And the tail can be as long as 100 million miles, and that it can travel at speeds of 350 miles per second. 350 miles a second. It gets across America in 10 seconds. You blink your eye, you miss it. Where is the force for all this? Where is the force that keeps the world moving? Where is the force and the power and the energy that comes to keep these comets moving? The human heart, it's about the size of the fist. It weighs less than half a pound, and it beats approximately 100,000 times a day. And you know what? And we don't have to remind the heart to beat. Think about that. God has arranged it so that my heart beats regularly 100,000 times a day, and I don't have to stop every couple seconds and say, come on, keep beating, keep beating. It just beats and beats and beats. And not only that, it pumps some 1,800 gallons of blood a day. 
1,800 gallons. You know, a sparkless water bottle has five gallons of water in it? 1,800 of those things of blood. Incredible. It does enough work in 12 hours to be able to lift 65 tons one inch off the ground. Awesome. Consider the sun. Oh, I love this one. The sun, now listen to this. I never knew this. The sun burns up 4 million tons of matter per second. Per second. And that generates 500 million, million, billion horsepower. You say, how much is that? Well, it's the equivalent of approximately one and a half million, million, billion Corvette stingrays. <laughs> Give you some kind of sense of where that is. And that's just, from, that's just from four million tons of matter per second. That's just per second. Think of the distance to the sun. We said 93 million miles. Light traveling from the sun, light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. Okay? By the time it leaves the sun and gets to here, travels at 93 million miles, it takes eight and a half minutes to get here. Light traveling at that speed, 60 seconds per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, in one year, light traveling at that speed would cover the distance of some six trillion miles. You say, wow. Now let me give you a grasp of, of what that distance is like. If you were to go across the galaxy, the Milky Way, that's the galaxy in which our solar system is part. If you were to start at one end of the Milky Way galaxy and you were to go across the galaxy and you were to travel at 186,000 miles per second, traveling six trillion miles a year, it would take you 125,000 years to get across the galaxy. And ours is only one galaxy amidst millions of galaxies in the universe. Is God big? <laughs> you feel like a little tiny speck, less than a speck. I hope to shout. Atoms. Let's look at the atom for a moment. We know they exist, but to my knowledge, to this day, I don't think anyone has seen an atom. We know they exist. We see their effect. Three atoms make up one water molecule. Two hydrogens and one oxygen atom make up one water molecule. If you were to take all the water molecules in a drop of water, and you were to blow up all those water molecules so that each one is the size of a grain of sand, you would have enough grains of sand to build a road one foot thick, a half a mile wide, and it would go from Los Angeles to New York in one drop of water. The great, the great amount of the atom is empty space. 
the mass of the atom is one trillionth of its volume. One trillionth. If you were to take an average-sized human being and you were to squeeze all the space out of that person and compress all the atoms, all the molecules down, you would have a mass of such size that it would fit on the head of a pin. It would be extremely heavy, <laughs> but it would fit on the head of a pin. Now, the next time someone tells you you're nothing, you can say, you're right. <laughs> a lot of space. You know, we can see God's eternal power. We can see his divine nature reflected in all of creation. We have no basis on which to say there is no God. And Paul testifies to us again in the first chapter of Romans, in the 19th and 20th verses. He said this is one of the reasons why God's wrath is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men because they're suppressing the truth, the known visible truth of God's existence by their wickedness. When you examine all of creation, there is no way that you can say God does not exist. And as soon as you admit that, at that point, like Moses, you must fall down at once and worship him because he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. Father, we thank you for your incredible grace to us. Father, we thank you for this marvelous creation that you've given us. This creation that testifies of your great majesty and glory. Lord, open our eyes as we look around and we stand in awe. And Lord, let us lift up our voices in praise and worship to you for the great complexity and beauty and order that you have brought into being. You are indeed a great God, and we praise your holy name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Woo! I want to call the ushers now to come receive our tithes and offerings. Bear with us a few more moments. I know I've gone on. We're going to have communion. If you're warm, fan yourself and fan your neighbor. Show a little love. As the ushers receive our offerings, please, those of you that are with us for the first time,